Hear the word of God. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron and the priests shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and bring it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast, cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Uh, I mentioned last week that we were going to spend these five Sundays to come in Lent. Um, by considering these first five chapters of Leviticus, it's a rather odd thing, I suppose. I haven't run across any other sermon series on Leviticus, on these chapters at least. Um, and perhaps it's just that we're an odd church. Although I probably shouldn't indict you along with me. Perhaps the real reason is that I'm simply an odd pastor. But I find in these chapters a theme which runs really predominantly through the whole scripture. And that is this theme of sacrifice. We go to the Gospels. is not the culmination. is not the drama there. The whole cross of Christ and the sacrifices of Christ, if we go to the New Testament letters and their instruction, is not the, the foundation there where the Apostle says, as Christ and Him crucified. In fact, as a community of believers, isn't the very foundation of our fellowship based on the sacrifice of Christ, the cross of Christ. If we go back to the history of redemption and begin reading through the scripture all the way back in Genesis, don't we find the major theme there, a major theme there of this whole notion of sacrifice. And so I think it's quite valuable for us to go and to consider these sacrifices. In fact, I mentioned to you last Sunday this quote from St. Augustine, who said, The New Testament is in the Old concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New revealed. 
In other words, as we read through the Old Testament, we, we, we get a sense that something very significant is going on here, but we don't quite get it. We don't quite see it until we come to the New Testament. And when we come to the New Testament, then that which is concealed in the Old is now revealed to us. That which is in the Old Testament, which is in symbol and, and form and, and shadow and all of that, we see come to life in the New Testament. And so Jesus is right here in all these Old Testament passages. We just don't see him as clearly as we do in the new. But once we come to the new, we understand the old. But I think as we come and work our way some through these Old Testament passages, even through these funny ones, these difficult ones, these odd ones to us, I think we catch a great glimpse of Jesus. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul, you don't need to turn to this, but the Apostle Paul in Romans in chapter 15 uh, puts it like this. He says, For whatever was written in former days, that is, in the Old Testament, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So ultimately, you see, as we come down to it, as we look at these Old Testament sacrifices, I believe it will increase our hope. I believe it will increase our faith. I believe it will increase our appreciation of who Jesus is and what He's done. And I think it will tell us more then about who we are to be. And if we don't get it, if we don't understand these things, then I think we'll be missing a nuance, missing an appreciation of what Christ has done for us. Now, when we come to the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, obviously, we don't just sort of pull it out and keep it separate from everything else. By the time we would get here, if we were reading from Genesis, some things would already be in, our, in place in our minds. Some things would already be built for us. We would already have the reports of God creating. So we have the creation account we already see that God's initial um, plan, desire, was to, to dwell with human beings as he did with Adam and Eve. But we see that dwelling disrupted by the rebellion and sin. And we see the consequences of that, of that sin causing a separation between these people and God. We see it, uh, this separation uh, because death, physical death, enters into the human race at that point because of their sin, thus separating them from the very life that is God. And we see the banishment of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, thus a spiritual separation because God can no longer dwell intimately with sinful human beings because He is holy and they are not. And we also see the manifestation of the sin uh, in the sinful behavior of human beings after the sin of Adam and Eve because we see murder and we see pride and we see arrogance and all of this take place. But yet in the midst of all that we find this promise this promise that still God's going to come and redeem God's going to come and send one from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of this tempter the head of this devil the head of this serpent who had come and then we see that God comes to this man named Abraham whose name is changed to Abraham and he makes a treaty with him or a covenant with him he gives him this promise and this promise includes this one which says that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And we see then that beginning to happen. And so you have this child of promise, Isaac, who then has this child, Jacob, and then who has many sons. And we see then that, that the one nation of the earth in particular, Egypt, is quite blessed by the descendants of Abraham. Because there's a famine coming in the land, and this man, Joseph, who's an Israelite, is the very one who plans it all out and makes sure that no one is short of food during this time. And then there's a migration of these Hebrews uh, to Egypt. And after Joseph dies, then fear comes upon the Pharaoh in Egypt and he becomes afraid of these Israelites and thus he enslaves them. 
and he enslaves them for 400 years. And then you remember that God calls this man Moses and he says, I want you to go and bring these people out. And so Moses goes, and, uh, goes into Egypt and he delivers the people of God out of Egypt and he brings them to Mount Sinai. And in this deliverance, it's proof, as God would say, that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then God gives through Moses the law. And it's in this law that he tells them then how they're to live because God's design now is to dwell among his people. And if we're reading through the book of Exodus, we see this plan that emerges, this plan for building a tabernacle, this big tent. And in this big tent, it's, the out, outside of it's this big rectangle about 75 feet by 150 feet. And inside, there's another rectangle in the west which contains the most holy place, the very dwelling place of God. And God says, I will dwell among my people. And this tabernacle, this big tent, is to be sent right in the center of the people. As they move around, it's movable. But every time they settle, this is to be the very center of their lives and all the, all the tribes around it. Not unlike in those days, a king would settle in the very middle, the monarch in the very middle, and all of his people around him. The big difference between this one and that is the fact that this monarch, this king, is God. And he's dwelling among his people. And now we come to the book of Leviticus, and the question is, how can that be? How can God live among people? How can a holy God live in the midst of an unholy people? And thus, the key verse in all of Leviticus, I think, is in chapter 19 and verse 2. And it's this. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The only way for this to work is as if the people are holy. Because you see, if God is holy, and he lives amongst unholy people, then either he will be defiled, or they will be consumed. And so he says, for you to live, for me to live in your midst, for you to live in mine, I'm holy. Therefore, you must be holy. And so as we come to this book of Leviticus, it's, it's all about holiness. It's all about holiness, living holy before the Lord, that you may be accepted by Him and live in His presence. But isn't that the question, really, of life? Isn't that the real question? How can we live in the presence of God? How can He live among us? Now, not everybody's asking that question. Because, you see, some people simply don't believe in God. They don't think he exists. And if he doesn't exist, then what's the big deal? There will be no judge. And others believe in God, but they don't believe he's that holy. Nor do they believe that we're that rebellious or sinful or unholy. And so they don't really see why there can't be some sort of agreement struck. And God just sort of hang out with us and we with him. But once it's conceded that God is holy, and once it's conceded that we are not, then the big question is, how's this going to work? How are we going to live in his presence? And if we can forestall the whole point even now, we can perhaps say that perhaps this holy God isn't all that interested in this earth, but, but what about when we die? Then how are we going to live through eternity? How can an unholy people live in the midst of a holy God? How can a holy God live in the midst of an unholy people? It seems that the people either have to become holy or they will be 
consumed. So as we come through the book of Leviticus, God says, now in this place where I live, this tabernacle, you will worship me and you will bring to me sacrifices. So these first five chapters of Leviticus outline five different sacrifices, which I, at least I planned and will consider in the next number of weeks. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and then the guilt offering. Today, it's the burnt offering. Now, the procedure for bringing a burnt offering is pretty straightforward. It's laid out rather nicely. The person brings either a bull, a lamb, or sheep, or goats, or bird. Male, at least as far as the sheep and the goat and the bull is concerned. And it seems the difference between them in terms of which you will bring is an economic one. If you can afford to bring a bull, then you would bring a bull. That's the most preferred. That's the first one listed. If you can't afford to bring a bull, then you would bring a sheep or a goat. And if you can't afford one of those, then you would bring a bird, either these turtle doves or Pigeon. Now, everybody then can be included in this. It doesn't seem to be able to, you can't say, well, I can't afford to do this, because if you can't afford any of them, then the bird and the dove seem to be fairly inexpensive and fairly easy to get, and so you could at least bring that. God will accept any. However, it seems that if you can afford to bring uh, a bull and you only bring a sheep, that's probably not good. And if you can afford to bring a sheep and you bring a bird, that's probably not good. But the point is that it's not going to exclude anyone, but that's the provision. The bull being the most preferred, probably the most valuable. And this animal is to be unblemished, an unblemished male. So it doesn't have any blemish on it at all. So it looks as if, it appears as if there needs to be some planning in all of this. I mean, you don't run across an unblemished goat unblemished bull. You've got to be thinking ahead and say, that's the one. And then the worshiper brings this bull to this tent of meeting. Now, I don't want you to miss the smell. I don't want you to miss the mess. And I don't want you to miss how unusual this is, especially to us. I mean, think about it. I mean, and this is probably isn't just one person showing up with a bull. This is probably a whole list of people. It isn't just one person out of all these Israelites going, oh, today's the bull day. I'm going to bring the bull. But if you bring and, and the sacrifices to take place and you wonder, why so many priests? Well, think about it. You're bringing a bull to church. A sheep or a goat. Minimally a bird. I always wonder if these animals got nervous. Somebody would have to be there to deal with that, if they did. And this is unusual for us, less unusual for them, given the culture and so forth and so on. But still, we've got to realize that the noise and the smells and all of that's to take place. And so the person brings this, this male bull. They're big. This male bull, he brings this bull in right to the entrance into the tent of meeting. And he lays his hand on this bull significantly. And then he kills it. It's his job. It's not the priest's job, but it's the person bringing the animal to kill it. And I suppose that if somebody's bringing a bull like that, he would have an understanding how to do that humanely and so forth and so on. But still, he kills it right there. And the priest then comes and gathers blood. And as they drain the blood from this animal, the priest gets the blood and he takes it into, into the tent of meeting, into the outer part of this tent. 
to where the altar is, this fire pit that's seven and a half feet square, about four and a half feet high with horns on all the corners. And he takes it there and he sprinkles the blood on the sides of this altar to purify in some sense, to cleanse the altar to may receive this sacrifice. And then he goes and some priests come and butcher this bull. They cut off its head, um, skin it, cut off its head, uh, take the head and the fat, and they put that right on the fire that they've arranged on the altar to burn it up. And then he take, they take the entrails, which is a nice word for entrails, And because they're entrails and the legs, they wash them. The priest washes the guts and washes the legs. And then they take the entrails and the legs and they put that on the fire so that this whole thing is consumed. Every bit of it. None of it's eaten. The whole thing's con con uh, consumed except for the skins, which the priests get. Get a little business on the side. Actually did. But, uh, but everything's consumed. And then it's done. And you leave. And so you ask the question, how does that work? Why is it that God would institute a sacrifice like that in order that he may dwell among his people? And what would possess a person to bring such a sacrifice into the tent? What would, what would, what would cause a person to be sitting around thinking, today I'm going to make a burnt offering of this bull or this, this sheep or this goat or even this bird? What would, what would bring him? What would be in that person's mind? What would he think is going to actually take place in the midst of all that. Well, I think we can find some, some clues into the meaning of all this by, by certain things. Number one, you remember that when the person, when the man brings his bull to the tent of meeting, he lays his hand on the head of that animal. Very significant. Because you see, that's a transference or an identification with that animal. There's a sense in which he's saying, this animal stands for me. Okay? Second clue is that in bringing uh, this bull, it's for the purpose that we see here in verse 3, that he, that is the worshiper, may be accepted before the Lord. Verse 4, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. There's, so, so, there's some sense, first, of identification, and then secondly, this is necessary in order to be accepted by God and for atonement to be made. And then the third clue is that this whole thing is consumed. None of it's eaten. Every bit of it, except for the skin, every bit of it is consumed on the fire. So how do we think about this? Why is it that God would, would, would institute a, sacri a sacrifice like this for acceptance of a person for make atonement for a person and it all be consumed. Well, think about it like this. That God is holy, as we said a moment ago, and we are not. But in order to live in His presence, we must come before Him holy. And so, God says, all right, you're not holy. I understand your sin, but I'm still going to live amongst you. So, how do we do that? Well, I'm going to give you this sacrifice. I'm going to give you this way to live in my presence, to worship me and thus live in my presence. I want you to bring this bull before me, and it's unblemished. And you're going to place your hand on its head and say, this bull stands for me. I'm blemished as a human being, but as a bull, 
He's unblemished. And so he's going to stand before you, God, on my account as holy. And that's the worshippers thinking, I'm going to go before God. How do I stand before God as an unholy man? He said, I could stand in another. I could bring another. And thus I put my hands on him, on his head, and, and, and I say, this one's for me. He stands for me unblemished. But not only that, you see. When he puts his hand upon the head of this bull, there's a, a certain transference that goes from one to the other. Because this bull is not only going to make him acceptable, i.e., holy before God, but also make atonement for him. And so it was customary to, 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 to put one's hand on this sacrificial animal as if to say, now, though he's unblemished, my unholiness transfers to him. And then he'd be killed. And the blood sprinkled as an atoning sacrifice. And it doesn't appear, especially in this burnt offering, that this person is any one particular sin in mind. We'll get to that when we get to the sin and the guilt offering. But there's just a sense of his own personal sinfulness. And he's coming before God. And God says, come, if you want to be in my presence, then acknowledge this sinfulness. Come in another unblemished and make atonement. But then very interestingly, this whole animal is consumed in front of their very eyes. And they can see the smoke go up and they can probably smell this thing being barbecued uh, on this fire. And it's at that moment that all of it comes together. Because, you see, we realize that we're to live our lives completely devoted to God. And this bull is given in utter devotion to God. He has no other purpose other than to be consumed. This bull has no other purpose than to be used precisely for what God has commanded. And any worshiper is thinking, that's to be my life. My life is to be given to God so that he may use it and use it up from first to last. And then the realization, but I'm in the presence of God. I should be consumed. I should be his wrath. The fire of his wrath should just torch me. But yet I live. And thus the realization of the grace of God. He's given me this substitute to, to, to stand for me, to go before me. And he's taken him and not me. This one died, and I live. Now, how am I supposed to live? Well, we're supposed to live as God has commanded, that he, that he deserves us to live in a way that's fully devoted to him. And thus the worshiper realizes, oh yes, I brought this sacrifice because it's my ultimate heart's desire to live a life devoted to God. But yet I look into the to my own heart, and I realize I'm not living that way. So how can I live in His presence? Well, He said, I may bring another who's unblemished that will stand for me. And He does, and thus God accepts me in this unblemished one. But not only that, God then atones for my sin through this unblemished one. His life for mine. He dies. I live. So as I walk away from this, I'm thinking, I should have been the one consumed, but I'm walking away. How should I live? <sighs> Completely devoted to God. See, that's what will be going through this very one's mind. And then, of course, we look to Jesus. We think about him because 
How is it that you and I can come and live in the presence of God? There's an expression that's often used by people, and it's used for good purposes. It's just not quite right, and that is, people say, God accepts you just as you are. But you know that isn't true. If God could accept you just as you are, there would be no need for Jesus. He would just accept you. God accepts you just as you are in Jesus. As you come to Him. And you come to God through and in Him. He's your unblemished one. How is it that you can live in the very presence of God? How can you breathe in the very presence of God? Well, it's because God has instituted a sacrifice. And Jesus is the one who stands for us. In fact, He's even more complete than this Leviticus 1 sacrifice. Because He comes, we don't bring Him. He comes on His own accord. He comes voluntarily as the one making the offering and as the offering itself. He comes on our behalf for us even before we've asked Him. He comes and He makes Himself a voluntary sacrifice out of love. And He stands there as the unblemished one. And our God says, trust Him. Come to Me in Him and you'll live. Come to me in him and you'll be accepted by me. It's the only way. If you want to live in my presence, you must be unblemished. But I'm not unblemished. But there is one who was. He for you. Trust him. And not only does he come, this unblemished one, to be our holiness, but he also comes, this unblemished one, to be our atoning sacrifice. Because in this transference, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He took the very penalty of our sin upon Himself. And at the end of the day, what we see is that in trusting in Jesus, we should have been the ones consumed, but yet we live. And so the question is, how then should we live? And the answer is, in complete devotion to God. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. I'm going to read you some Bible here, so just come with me. Galatians in chapter 2. In verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, here's that identification with Christ. When he died, I died. When he rose, I rose. So I've been crucified with Christ. You know, the old hymn, were you there when they crucified my Lord? The answer is yes. If you're a believer, you're in Him. When He died, you died. And when He rose, you rose. And when He rose, that was the sweet-smelling savor unto God. That's what He enjoyed. He said, yes, I accept this sacrifice. This is good. And so, how are we to live? Well, we're to live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. In 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 verse 14 what I read as our service began today. A little nuance we've put in our worship services called the announcement. I don't know if you pay attention to our little changes in the order of worship but, but uh, it's simply to announce to you that which is true. Just to 
herald the truth. And so I use this particular verse today, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. The Apostle writes, For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This worshiper in the Old Testament brings this offering thinking, my desire is to be devoted to God, but I'm not. How can I be accepted? Here's one who's devoted to God, unblemished for me. Here's one who takes my sin and is my atoning sacrifice. He dies, I live. How am I then to live? I'm to live as one who no longer lives for himself, but who lives for Christ. And we can do this. Turn to Romans chapter 6 and verse 2. the middle of this verse, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul says, here's what baptism means. It isn't what baptism affects, that is just because you're baptized doesn't mean this happens. But this is the meaning of baptism. When we look at, at someone being baptized, this is what we're thinking. That we must be joined together with Christ. We must be joined with Him if we're to have life. We must identify with Him in the same way that the bringer of the bull lays his hand on the head. We must lay our hands, if you will, on Christ. Better, He on us. So that when He dies, we die. He rises, we rise. For the purpose, verse 3, that we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This person brings this bull for burnt offering. I want to be devoted to God, but I'm not. Here is one who's unblemished who stands before me. And he takes my sin and atonement is made that I might live. How then am I to live? I'm to live as one who's died to sin and risen to newness of life. Colossians in chapter 3. And verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. See how, how similar and yet amazing this is. You know, that Old Testament sacrificer walks away from this consumed sacrifice, living. And there's a sense in which he said, my sin died there. The penalty of my sin was paid there. And I'm now to live completely devoted to God. 
And when we look at the cross of Jesus, we realize he died there, I died there, but yet I'm still breathing. I wasn't even born then. I wasn't even back there then. How could I have died with him? We're spiritually reunited to him. That now we might live. And so the apostle says, if you've been raised with Christ, well, how do you know if you've been raised with Christ? Well, only if you've died with him. Well, how do you know that you've died with him? Well, you've identified with him. Well, how? By faith. Trusting. Verse 3, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You think, but these things have been part of my life. Sexual immorality has been part of my life, you say. Impurity has been part of my life. These passions and evil desires, covetousness has been part of my life. I covet, you might think, is just a matter of course. And the reminder is, smell that bull. Understand it's dead. Completely consumed. Don't live like that anymore. Verse 7, And these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You think these things have been a part of my life, anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and, I, and lying and so forth, being deceptive. We understand. I'm not some pie-in-the-sky stuff. This is struggle and effort and desire and passion to be devoted to God and to strip your life of these things. That's why Paul doesn't use easy words. He says, put it to death. He says, I know your struggle. Paul would struggle his own way. Just put it to death. Don't live a double life. Live in integrity before God. Devoted to Him. Jesus would put it like this in Luke in chapter 9, verse 23. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He says, listen, it's about sacrifice. It's about death. To take up one's cross would be the same as to take up a hangman's noose or to take up an electric chair or to take up a lethal injection. And he says, I want you to take up a cross. I want you to kill these things in, the, in your life. For they're criminals, and they're worthy of death. Capital punishment. Kill them. Take them out of your life. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his soul? The Old Testament person comes bringing this bull, and he's been anticipating for quite some time. This particular bull to be completely devoted to God for him. And he makes sure that it's unblemished. It's just the way it's supposed to be. So they can bring and say, this bull is my substitute. It stands, God, before you on my account. And God accepts this holiness. And then this bull takes sin and makes atonement. Thus, God forgives sin. 
And though this man should be consumed in the presence of God, he lives and leaves than to walk in newness of life. Now, we don't have to make such sacrifice in that sense because there was one who came for us and there was one who perfectly represented us. You know, the difficulty of the Old Testament sacrifices is that they stretch the imagination just a bit. There you stand with this bull before the Lord, this huge beast on four legs and say, all right, this stands for me. Doesn't seem like it does exactly. But then comes the Lord Jesus, a man, a human being, God in the flesh, but yet human. And he says, I will perfectly take you on. And I will perfectly stand for you before my Father. And I will be unblemished. I will perfectly obey, just as a human being is to perfectly obey. And I will do that for you. So when you come to the Father, to live in His presence, to be devoted to Him, come in me, because I stand perfectly pure and unblemished. Trust me. Don't waver. Trust me. And not only that, in my identification with you, in your identification with me, I will take the penalty of your sin upon me. Though I know no sin, I will become sin for you. I'll take your sin, the penalty of it. And I'll give my blood as an atoning sacrifice for you. And then you'll live in this amazement that I should die, but yet I live. And then the question, how should I live? It was that night that Jesus was betrayed. He was with his disciples and he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. In the same way, he took the cup And again, after he gave thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my bloodshed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. So much could have been going through my mind. And even after the fact, to be thinking about the Passover and, and the sacrifice of Jesus. And yet, this whole idea of burnt offering would, might very well come to mind. Unblemished sacrifice. Substitute. For me, atoning sacrifice on my behalf. He dies. I live. In a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to this table. It's the table of the Lord Jesus. He's here. All the bread and juice are still bread and juice. Nothing magic there. But he's here spiritually. He invites us to this table. I want to ask you to think about why you will come. Maybe that you'll come just because everybody else in your row is going to come. I rather used to like it when we met at Deerfield Elementary School, a very relatively small number of us, and when it was time for communion, people just got up and came. We weren't very Presbyterian about it. We didn't go row by row and neat by neat and all of that. Sometimes I think people feel pressure while the purple around me when I can't just sit here, so I'll come. Don't succumb to that pressure. 
It's not why you would come. It isn't just tradition. It isn't just because you're here. It isn't just because everybody else is. It isn't because it's a thing to do on Sunday morning. It's a matter of the heart. It's just as if this Old Testament person is coming and he's saying, this bull is exactly what I need. This bull does it for me. This bull is unblemished and God will accept this bull as my holiness. This bull will come and atone for my sin. That's what I need. I need holiness and atonement. I need that so that I can live. And I desire too, then, to just like this bull, be totally devoted, totally consecrated to God. That every bit of me be spent upon God. That's what I need. And so that's really the question for us this morning as we come to to the table, the table of the Lord, that to encounter the Lord Jesus, does He do it all? Is He the very one that we need? Is He the one that says, yes, He's the unblemished one. That's what I need if I'm going to live in the presence of God. He's my atoning sacrifice. That's what I need if I'm going to live in the presence of God. And what I really desire to do is live in the presence of God, consecrated to Him, devoted to Him, it's in Jesus that I must live. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you. I pray that you would set apart this bread and this juice in a way that enables us to encounter the Lord Jesus, our perfect sacrifice in every way. He's precisely what we need. Our problem is that we are unholy. We do not live in devotion to you. But yet he is holy and he lives in devotion to you. And he took our sin upon himself that we might live. So we pray that we would encounter him in a way this morning that refreshes all of that, that renews all of that, and causes us to leave this place with a certain spiritual amazement that He died and we're alive. And not only that, we live in Your presence to have access to You, to be Your children, to be blessed by You and to walk with You and depend upon You. I pray, Father, that even as we encounter Jesus just now, that we will have a deep spiritual longing, craving, passion to live fully devoted So that we would consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That we would pick up our crosses and put to death all that is displeasing to you. We may really live. Bring us to this place, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in His sight without hope except in His sovereign mercy. You know you need someone to stand before God for you. And you know that's Jesus. You know you need someone to take the penalty of your sin and to satisfy the wrath of God. And you know that's Jesus. And it's your desire, the very desire of your heart to now live in a way that puts sin to death that you might live in newness of life. And you know that Jesus is the only one who can help you. If that's true of you, then I invite you to come these two sections.
down this aisle to my left, these two sections down this aisle to my right, or just come however you wish. I wish that there, you know, I, you get the, I get the impression, and I'm probably not, I don't know, I didn't live 2,000 years ago. But I get the impression that these, these people bringing these offerings sometimes couldn't wait to get there. They prepared for this. They've got this unblemished bull, and they knew this was the day. And they just couldn't wait to get there. So if you can't wait to get there, just do an end run. All right? Send a couple blockers ahead of you. Just come. 